Welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall learn about the underlying fears and motivations for the insurrection that go beyond the big lie of a stolen election to the bedrock of white supremacy that has driven white riots for more than a hundred years. Clips today are from At Liberty, from the ACLU, Counterspin, It's Been a Minute with Sam Sanders, Democracy Now!, a message from Arnold Schwarzenegger, and the Bradcast. The ACLU has always been about the right to protest, the right to speak. This has nothing to do with protest. What happened on Wednesday was not a protest. It was a violent attempt to prevent the House of Representatives from counting electoral ballots ballots to change the head of the government, a violent attempt to prevent that, not a breaking of a window in a downtown office building. This is something completely different. And let's think about in terms of the images, the strongest image for me is the president of the United States standing in front of this country and saying, these are the things and events that happen when a landslide victory is stripped away from patriots. This president has no connection to reality whatsoever. The dreams that he has been putting forward that have been rejected by every court, by every appellate court, by the U.S. Supreme Court, it's a fantasy. And yet he is saying, this is what happens when you take my fantasy of I won this election despite the fact that I got beat by millions and millions of votes. So his face saying those words is one of the strongest images that I will remember for the rest of my life. There were nooses that were erected on the Capitol grounds. There was a Confederate flag that was marched through the Capitol. Do we really still have to have a debate about what that image means, about what the Confederate flag means? And what did the president say to these people? You are special and I love you. That's what he said. And so those are the images that cling to my mind, the images of white protesters taking what appear to be selfies with with uh, police officers who are supposed to be preventing them from entering this building. Everybody has talked about the images of what happened in June in Washington, D.C., when Black Lives Matter protesters didn't get anywhere near the Capitol, but essentially, pardon my French, got their asses kicked for simply being in the street. And I don't know how many of you saw how many people were still in the street hours after the curfew had been declared and the police were sitting there watching them doing nothing. So the images that reflect in my mind are, it's it's kind of like meet the new boss, same as the old boss. We have seen this time and time and time again. The issues that are presented and the color of the skin of the people that are protesting have a major impact on how violent the police are. And let's just take for a minute 
just for a minute, Dale said there were a number, there were five people that were killed whose lives were lost specifically because of this protest. That's on Donald Trump's head. What do you think America would be saying right now if a Black Lives Matter protest ended with five people dead? So what this says to me is that the the strength of white supremacy and racism in this country is reflected by exactly what we saw happening on Wednesday. I am completely rational right now. Am I angry? Don't mistake the passion in my voice for a lack of analysis, because this is a critical event in America's history. And for us to understand exactly what it reflects is really important because the 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 uh, changing of the narrative is already happening. Oh, they just got out of hand a little bit. Yeah, they broke some windows. Oh, that's too bad. It really was just spontaneous. It wasn't any big thing. That's not what was happening. Everything would have been different yesterday from beginning to end, including before yesterday, as you're noting, if these people were black or were brown or were disabled, you know, really anything but what they were. I would add that that would extend beyond the day, you know, had these been black people, there would be real world lasting repercussions for all black people, right? And if you complained, anyone, all anyone would need to say would be like 1621, man, you know. Mm -hmm. The point is, talking about how differently they would have been treated if they were black, say, it's not a rhetorical exercise. It's not a game of what if, you know, that contrast is really the story, right? It is, and it goes well beyond the obvious I mean, so obvious that even some of the mainstream media has noted it, that Black Lives Matter activists would have been treated differently, that, you know, Native Americans defending their land and their legal rights who were water hosed in sub-freezing temperatures at Standing Rock were treated differently, that activists who were just begging their senators not to kill them by eliminating their health care were ripped out of wheelchairs and thrown in handcuffs. I mean, yes, those are the obvious differences as opposed to the kid glove treatment that, that the white nationalists got yesterday. But the deeper problem is really the entire white nationalist project that, you know, as you alluded to in the introduction, this whole venture rests on the fact that the police were so-called unprepared. I saw that word several times in the media coverage. It's not that they were unprepared, it's that they were prepared for white nationalists, which to them is not a crisis in the same way that black people demanding rights is, or that people insisting that public health care and national health care should be a thing. The problem goes much deeper there, and it is both a problem of how we have governed and a problem of how the police and the military have been central to white supremacy. Structurally, foundationally, ideologically, the function of the police has always been to defend the system as it exists, and the system is a white supremacist system. The ruling power started 500 years ago with settler colonizers. It went on to include genocide, slavery, 
strike breaking in the capitalist in the more modern capitalist era. It has never included defending democracy. That is a central understanding of of how the police work. They weren't overwhelmed. You know, they knew. They just didn't think it was a problem. I can't keep playing that imagine if game because I'm really thinking every black candidate forever would be side-eyed, you know, you know, by the media. So if you don't win, are you gonna, are your people gonna riot? We know that you all don't really believe in democracy. I don't think media as, oh my gosh, as they are right now, I don't think they're really taking on board the, the counterfactual that they're sort of thinking about. And then more cynically, I sort of think, in contrast, there won't be the same kind of repercussions for people who not just look like the insurrectionists from yesterday, but who think like them, you know, except that maybe media might seek them out, you know, to say, you're the good Trump dead ender, you know, <laughs> um, you know, what makes you tick? Why didn't you storm the Capitol? Yeah, I saw a comment this morning from Ben Ehrenreich, who was talking about the media label of a mob, right, reaching for sort of a, a classist term instead of calling them fascists or or neo-Nazi or racist or white supremacist and not calling them just protesters because rightly they were trying to differentiate between let's say Black Lives Matter or healthcare protesters but not going for the term that's really there. It is difficult to grapple with the language around here. We're in kind of new territory, but what we do see is a an unwillingness to use the terms white nationalist to use white supremacist in connection with this kind of thing. And I think it is part of media's desire to splinter people off to say this really is a fringe and discourage the connections between these people and, in fact, the mainstream of the Republican Party and of many U.S. institutions. I think that that is absolutely right. There's kind of two things going on there in that I would call it a soothing effort to make this not a bigger problem, right? The larger problem is not contextualizing it in white supremacy. The larger problem is not admitting that the entire American project is a white supremacist project. You know, the media did point some fingers at Donald Trump yesterday, rightly, but they seem to exempt almost wholly the entire rest of the Republican Party. This morning on the New York Times' homepage, at least on the app, they had a bunch of quotes, and they were all from Republicans, making them look really principled. You know, Graham, McConnell, and, and, and Leffler saying, you know, well, this isn't the right thing to do, as if these people hadn't been feeding this same right-wing monster for the last four years, not to mention the last four weeks. Right. So that's like one way in which the media is trying to create a respectable-looking uh, set of Republicans in the middle of what is not that. The other is not talking about the larger shift here, which is the assault on democratic norms and the assault on democracy itself, which has moved from sort of a cloaked phase, you know, voter ID laws that we pretend are just about voter fraud or that are somehow, you know, facially neutral or whatever, mass incarceration, which, you know, disenfranchises and create second-class citizenship for, you know, millions and millions of people. 
moving away from that cloaked phase to this really overt phase and, and kind of testing what works. Like, well, let's throw some lawsuits at it. Let's try that. Let's try to, like, directly shake down some officials and threaten them. Okay, let's try that. You know, in, in, uh, in October, Representative Mike Lee floated the term rank democracy, you know, as if there is such a thing as too much democracy. Like, you know, don't let the unwashed actually vote. And that's exactly what it is. And that is actually both a point of continuity and discontinuity with the entire American project. It has never been a country that is a democracy, a true democracy, in the sense of a universal franchise, let alone economic and social democracy. But it has pretended for a long time that it is. And what the right is doing now is testing even that pretense, see how they can proceed. And that is a genuine fascist threat. And that's the danger of portraying this as marginal or fringe or failed, right? Portraying it as a failed attempt because, as you and others have said, that failure doesn't mean the end of it. No, absolutely not. I mean, yes, the, I've seen a couple of headlines about, like, well, Trump's on his way out anyway. And, you know, this morning as I was listening to NPR, the reporter or the anchor said, well, what did they think they would accomplish? You know, like they were talking about some, some kids on a playground. And it's it's not, you know, that they failed at overturning the election. It's that they succeeded in mainstreaming fascism and fascist tactics. That's really the point, and I haven't seen that anywhere um, in the mainstream media coverage. You know, similarly on New York One, or in a New York One tweet, I should say, to be exact, somebody was talking about how the property damage this morning was actually quite minimal. Yeah, it might be minimal, although, you know, when property damage happens at, at a Black Lives Matter protest, you would think it was a matter of national security. But I responded to that tweet by saying that's besides the point. The assault isn't on, you know, Capitol Hill property, it's on democracy itself. And that really has not been enough of a focus. As a matter of fact, in a general kind of a way, this is is a continuity from the entire Trump era where media have gone out of their way to normalize fascist tactics and trying to squeeze them, you know, square peg in a round hole kind of a style into the box of normal political imagery where they describe something like they had a they had a headline yesterday before all this went down. With objection to election results, Hawley puts his party in a bind, you know. So they turned this over anti democratic effort to overturn an election into an intra party, you know, political quandary. Thus normalizing what is not normal or what should not be normal in an allegedly democratic society. There's blood and violence in the streets. Don't you cry themselves asleep. Is this for real? You know, my mama used to say that love and war are just the same. You gotta walk away sometimes. You know what it felt like to me? It felt like an old school lynch mob. You know, when these lynch mobs occurred decades, centuries ago, uh, all the folks that showed up there didn't come to lynch. You know, a handful of the men were going to do it, but a lot of other folks just came to watch, just came for the party, just came to have a picnic while they watched it. And there are so many folks that were at the Capitol on Wednesday 
who didn't come to hurt Pelosi or Pence, but they wanted to watch if it happened. Yes. And I think the analogy to a lynch mob is the right one. I think um, it's worth making analogies to the kinds of um, mobs that formed to storm state capitals and city halls during Reconstruction. I think I, I would like people to understand is that there is no clear delineation between what I'm going to call a bit and real violence, right? Mm. That mm. I'll just give an example, kind of an er example from the Reconstruction era. You know, a group of men can get together and decide to put on some hoods and costumes to go scare off some, you know, a prosperous black farmer. You know, a Republican official, someone in town, and they can go just to do it, to do it, not intending to inflict any serious violence. But depending on the dynamics, the particular personalities, depending on whether they face any resistance, that lark, that bit, can go on to become real, a real, a real violence, right? And the what I wrote about in my column last week was that in Louisiana in the in eighteen seventy four, specifically, a group called the White League and the White League what a name <laughs> they were they weren't there to just have fun right they they specifically formed to intimidate republicans and freed blacks but it was very small scale at the start intimidating again officials uh, a teacher but you know they find that there's not that much resistance and so what begins as local terror pretty quickly becomes something much larger and more organized, such that mm. by that fall, you have a, a small sort of, you know, battalion of 3,500 men taking the state capitol house, deposing the governor, trying to attempt um, a coup there. They even hold inauguration festivals for the guy they had picked to for be. For the guy who lost. <laughs> yeah, for the guy who lost the previous election. And we should just pause here to like say for our listeners, you are recounting a story that feels eerily similar to what could have happened in D.C. last week. Right. 1874 in New Orleans, a white mob storms the Capitol to say, the guy who won, we don't like that, put the other guy in. And right. they did it, right? Right, and they did it. And it took about three or four days before federal troops came in and kind of forced them to stand down. But no one was punished after this, right? And the, the argument wow. in my column is that, you know, the fact that this could happen with relative impunity meant that when given an opportunity, they would do it again. And not just do it again, other people in other states would sort of take their cues and take a lead from this. And so you see throughout the Deep South, especially throughout the South, these sorts of mob actions taking place with the aim of deposing or if not deposing a Republican Reconstruction government, then at least terrorizing black voters, terrorizing Republican officials, and creating the conditions to oust that government by th in an election, but an election tainted with you know violence and fraud. You know, so the insurrection that you wrote about in 1874 in New Orleans, this white mob was trying to end what they called a Negro rule. And this was all about race. It was all about trying to end Reconstruction and keep blacks from being as free as they possibly could be. Some folks hearing this now will say, well, that is not like what could have happened at the Capitol last week. It's not about race. It's not about freeing slaves. It's about 
election fraud. Joe Biden is white. You know, there are still folks that might not see a through line of race in last week's events. What would you say to the to those who don't? You know, I, I would say that you have to take a, a more sort of expansive view of what it means to say that something is influenced by race or really influenced by racism mm. and kind of racial domination and race hierarchy and these things, which mm. is that in the New Orleans example, the governor wasn't a black guy. He was white. Um, but yeah. his political power, his political coalition rested on black voters. And in the same way, Joe Biden is a white guy, you know, kind of a prototypical, you know, old <laughs> white politician. But the coalition that brought him to power was, you know, disproportionately comprised of African Americans, of Hispanics, of Asian Americans, of a kind of a multicultural group of Americans, as well as white liberals. So you have this diverse coalition. And the claim being made against Biden when there's these accusations of fraud, I mean, I think some people do literally believe that you know, millions of votes for manufacturing. But I think what you should understand it as is a claim that this coalition is not legitimate, right? That these people mm. do not count as, you know, quote, real Americans. And so the claim of fraud is really a claim about legitimacy, about who can rightfully claim the power of the state. And the mob at the Capitol was saying, well, not these people. And that's that's the through line, right? So much of American politics since the Civil War has been about this question of who can exercise political power, who has mm. not just the full rights of citizenship, but who is a legitimate political actor. And yeah. if you start thinking about kind of race in those terms, less as, you know, personal prejudice, less as, you know, a group of people who hate, you know, black people or Hispanic people or whatnot, but uh, who, whose idea of the nation and whose idea of who is a legitimate political actor is tied to race, tied to religion, right? Sort of white Christians are those who have the right to rule, the right to govern. Mm. Then I think mm. things become a, a bit more intelligible. If you can talk about what you watched last week and why you see race at the core of this Trump-inspired insurrection. Right. I mean, num number one, I mean, it's kind of you, Amy, to mention the article. The, the reason why I could publish a big article about this part of the coup attempt right after it happened was that this was completely and utterly predictable. I already had the article drafted before the 6th of January because it was obvious to me what was going to happen. And so I just want to underline the points you were suggesting earlier about just how strange it was um, that this kind of thing could happen so easily. As to race, I mean, this is a this is a classic historian's point. Um, the, the point I make in the article is about the big lie. You know, I, I, I say that these are the, the these are the kinds of things that happen if a, a charismatic leader with a, with a big megaphone with a lot of reach is able to consistently tell one thing which is simply not true but which is but which deeply matters like for example i won an election that i lost that has to lead to violence but as you rightly suggest 
the big lie has to be rooted in a particular society. And in the United States, the big lie is going to be rooted in race. Let's let's count the ways. Number one, what Mr. Trump is saying when he won the election is that there was fraud. And by by fraud, he means the reality that African-Americans are allowed to vote when he when he speaks of Milwaukee or Atlanta uh, or Detroit. What he's saying is black voters. Right. When he's saying I won, he's saying I won if you only count the votes of the real Americans. Number two. Think of Senator Cruz and his invocation of 1877. As every historian of the U.S. knows, and as lots of African-American knows, but no, but maybe not everybody knows, the, the Compromise of 1877 is the very moment when the American South was allowed to build up a basically American apartheid. The Compromise of 1877 is what allowed American states to push Amer- African-Americans away from the voting booths and into a Jim Crow condition, which was going to last for nearly a century and which we're still, de- still dealing with today. Number three, look at the people who actually invade the Capitol. These are, and this has not been covered enough, this has not been hit hard enough, these people are basically white supremacists. The white supremacists are, are, are leading the way, right? They're leading the way and they're making the argument that this is our house. In other words, what we think is that American government should be in the hands of white people who are willing to be violent about black people. But uh, Professor Snyder, I wanted to ask you in terms of uh, you characterize it more as an attempted coup than the perhaps maybe insurrection, because a coup assumes that there was an actual, it seems to me, an actual plot uh, afoot uh, by the uh, the coup makers. And in this situation, it appears to be that, uh, that Trump uh, egged on the mob clearly, and that it seems to me there's always been a right-wing fascist movement in the United States in search of a leader. I mean, if you go back to uh, to uh, uh, Father Coughlin in the 30s, Huey Long, George Wallace, there's always been a significant portion of the American p- population uh, that has lent itself or seen itself uh, in, the, in uh, right-wing uh, and anti-democratic terms. And now they actually have a leader in the White House. So to what degree was this really uh, an opportunism that Trump took advantage of to unleash the mob uh, as as opposed to a coup where military leaders or key officials got together to plan an overthrow? Yeah, I I, I, I take that point. I mean, I would emphasize, Juan, that it's important that we not get too lost in, in, you know, in definitional disagreements about whether we're going to say coup or putsch or insurrection. The, the American Republic is, is hanging by a thread because the president of the United States has sought to use violence to stay in power and essentially to overthrow our constitutional system. There's broad agreement about that. I've been calling it a coup for, the long t- for a long time, actually. I mean, for, for months for the following reasons. Or a coup attempt, to be precise, because it's been clear for a long time, because Mr. Trump has said so himself, that he intends to stay in power after losing the election. That's been his language for more than six months. He's been trying to bring the military into it. That was clear on June the 1st. Um, Lafayette Square. And it's also clear from these repeated statements from today, the Joint Chiefs of Staff, a few days ago, the 10 former Secretaries of Defense. The reason why these people have to make these statements 
is that they're aware that Mr. Trump is trying to get or has a certain amount of support in the military, right? So it's a coup attempt in my view because Mr. Trump has said he's going to try to change the nature of the American regime and he's been trying to use instruments inside American institutions. Now, beyond that, I would point out that this wasn't just a mob. I mean, as you know very well, and as you just said, these are not these aren't just people who happen to be there. These these are several different kinds of white supremacist and extreme right wing paramilitaries who are appearing at the Capitol. Um, they are getting mixed in now with members of the police, and this is extremely dangerous because it's that mixture of outside the state, outside the law, paramilitaries and police forces or policemen who start to go over on the other side, which is which is very characteristic of the way fascist regimes come to power. As an immigrant to this country, I would like to say a few words to my fellow Americans to our friends around the world about the events of recent days. Now, I grew up in Austria. I'm very aware of Kristallnacht, or the Night of Broken Glass. It was a night of rampage against the Jews carried out in 1938 by the Nazi equivalent of the Proud Boys. Wednesday was the Day of Broken Glass right here in the United States. The broken glass was in the windows of the United States Capitol. But the mob did not just shatter the windows of the Capitol, they shattered the ideals we took for granted. They did not just break down the doors of the building that housed the American democracy, they trampled the very principles on which our country was founded. Now, I grew up in the ruins of a country that suffered the loss of its democracy. I was born in 1947, two years after the Second World War. Growing up, I was surrounded by broken men drinking away their guilt over their participation in the most evil regime in history. Not all of them were rabid anti-Semites or Nazis. Many just went along, step by step, down the road. They were the people next door. Now, I've never shared this so publicly because it is a painful memory. But my father would come home drunk once or twice a week, and he would scream and hit us and scare my mother. I did not hold him totally responsible because our neighbor was doing the same thing to his family, and so was the next neighbor over. I heard it with my own ears and saw it with my own eyes. They were in physical pain from the shrapnel in their bodies and in emotional pain from what they saw or did. It all started with lies and lies and lies and intolerance. So being from Europe, I have seen firsthand how things can spin out of control. I know there is a fear in this country and all over the world that something like this could happen right here. Now, I do not believe it is, but I do believe that we must be aware of the dire consequences of selfishness and cynicism. President Trump sought to overturn the results of an election and of a fair election. He saw the coup by misleading people with lies. My father and our neighbors were misled also with lies. And I know where such lies lead. President Trump is a failed leader. 
he will go down in history as the worst president ever. The good thing is that he soon will be as irrelevant as an old tweet. But what are we to make of those elected officials who have enabled his lies and his treachery? I will remind them of what Teddy Roosevelt said. Patriotism means to stand by the country. It does not mean to stand by the president. Now John F. Kennedy wrote a book called Profiles in Courage. A number of members of my own party, because of their own spinelessness, would never see their names in such a book, I guarantee you. They are complacent with those who carried the flag of self-righteous insurrection into the capital. But it did not work. Our democracy held firm. Within hours, the Senate and the House of Representatives were doing the people's business and certifying the election of President-elect Biden. What a great display of democracy. Now, I grew up Catholic. I went to church, to Catholic school. I learned the Bible and my catechism and all of this. And from those days, I remember a phrase that is relevant today, a sermon's heart. It means serving something larger than yourself. See, what we need right now from our elected representatives is a public servant's heart. We need public servants that serve something larger than their own power or their own party. We need public servants who will serve higher ideals, the ideals in which this country was founded, the ideals that other countries look up to. Now, over the past few days, friends from all over the world have been calling and calling and calling me, calling me in distraught and worried about us as a nation. One woman was in tears about America, wonderful tears of idealism about what America should be. Those tears should remind us of what America means to the world. Now I've told everyone who has called that as heartbreaking as all of this is, America will come back from these dark days and shine our lights once again. Now you see this sword? This is the Conan sword. Now here's the thing about swords. The more you temper a sword, the stronger it becomes. The more you pound it with a hammer and then heat it in the fire and then thrust it into the cold water and then pound it again and plunge it into the fire and into the water, the more often you do that, the stronger it becomes. I'm not telling you all this because I wanted to become an expert sword maker, but our democracy is like the steel of this sword. The more it is tampered, the stronger it becomes. Our democracy has been tempered by wars, injustices, and insurrections. I believe, as shaken as we are by the events of recent days, we will come out stronger because we now understand what can be lost. We need reforms, of course, so that this never ever happens again. We need to hold accountable the people that brought us to this unforgivable point. And we need to look past ourselves, our parties and disagreements and put our democracy first. And we need to heal together from the drama of what has just happened. We need to heal, not as Republicans or as Democrats, but as Americans. Now to begin this process, no matter what your political affiliation is, 
I ask you to join me in saying to President-elect Biden, President-elect Biden, we wish you great success as our president. If you succeed, our nation succeeds. We support you with all our hearts as you seek to bring us together. And to those who think they can overturn the United States Constitution, know this, you will never win. President-elect Biden, we stand with you today, tomorrow, and forever in defense of our democracy from those who would threaten it. May God bless all of you, and may God bless America. Some have called it the Ku Klux Klan. That's C-O-U-P. Ku Klux Klan. And you make no apologies about referring to white supremacists leading this. Let's talk about the military and police involvement. It's just coming to light right now. Um, it looked like this sort of disorderly array of people who took an opportunity last week. Um, but now, as more and more video is coming out, it may well be that the front lines were quite well-ordered. And now this latest news that um, the uh, Seattle police were involved, that New York police officers, officers were involved, that Philadelphia transit officers came down en masse, that PSYOPs person at least one was involved, uh, psychological operations— Talk about this. Okay, well, I mean, number one, when we talk about the coup plotters, uh, just to make the obvious point, the most the most important is is Donald Trump himself, who has been creating an he's been creating the the psychological and the moral environment for, that makes this possible by telling a big lie in which he is a victim and people who voted for him are victims. I think in the second rank, we have to put senators Cruz and Hawley. It's extremely important that these senators decided to make of January sixth a kind of carnival of mendacity in which they were going to exploit their official position in order to tell the big lie and an occasion which should be formal and solemn. I think that makes them the second ranks of, of the plotters. Number three, as you say, there, there was a good deal of organization taking place and the Anti-Defamation League and other non-governmental organizations were tracking this. Um, but not able to get very much of a hearing, it seems to me, from, from government institutions. I mean, as, as a spectator from a long way away, it was obvious to me, as I say, that something like this was, was, was going to happen. I think, Amy, what follows from this is that um, in this interval between impeachment, which is going to now happen, and a trial, which I'm going to bet is going to happen after Biden's 100 days, there should be something like an independent blue ribbon commission of forensics experts, digital forensics experts, historians, national security people, lawyers, and activists um, who put together a, a, a beautiful and organized and fact-based report about what happened so that Three months from now, when there's a Senate vote, which I believe there will be, there will also be this document that makes it clear how people should vote, but also a document which can go down, go down in history. Because, I mean, other days in infamy compared to this one don't compare. I mean, this the, the January putsch is, is the day in infamy, which we have to get right 
for historical purposes. If this becomes a myth of victimhood, if this becomes, as Mr. Trump says, you know, something we should treasure, then the country is in trouble. We need to get the facts right and the history right and the story right on this one. Oh, while the racist in chief tweets out his make believe, it's getting hard to breathe. The fire spreading out, it's gonna be hard to put out. It's getting hard to breathe. Congressman Jim McGovern, Democrat from Massachusetts and chair of the House Rules Committee, opened the proceedings for the second impeachment of Donald Trump on Wednesday with this explanation of why he believed the initiative is so imperative. Mr. Speaker, we are debating this historic measure at an actual crime scene, and we wouldn't be here if it weren't for the President of the United States. On Wednesday, January 6th, Congress gathered here to fulfill our constitutional duty, tallying the Electoral College victory of President-elect Biden and Vice President-elect Harris after a free and fair election. This uh, is largely a ceremonial role for the Congress, one that sends a message to the world that democracy in the United States persists. But at a rally, just a mile and a half down Pennsylvania Avenue, Donald Trump and his allies were stoking the anger of a violent mob. A member of this very body proclaimed on that stage, today is the day American patriots start taking down names and kicking ass. Trump's personal attorney, Rudy Giuliani, called for trial by combat. Then, Donald Trump told the crowd, we're going to have to fight much harder. You will never take back our country with weakness. Even though, according to his own administration, that this election was the most secure in our history, Donald Trump repeated his big lie that this election was an egregious assault on democracy. Vice President Pence, he said, was going to have to come through for us. Trump then told this mob to walk down to the Capitol. The signal was unmistakable. These thugs should stage a coup so Donald Trump can hang on to power. The people's will be damned. This beacon of democracy became the site of a vicious attack. Rioters chanted, hang Mike Pence. As a noose and gallows were built a stone's throw from the Capitol steps. Capitol police officers were beaten and sprayed with pepper spray. Attackers hunted down lawmakers to hold them hostage or worse. Staff barricaded doors. People sent text messages to their families to tell them they loved them. They thought they were saying goodbye, Mr. Speaker. This was not a protest. This was an insurrection. This was a well-organized attack on our country that was incited by Donald Trump. Domestic terrorists broke into the United States Capitol that day, and it's a miracle more people didn't die. As my colleagues and I were being evacuated to safety, I never ever will forget what I saw when I looked into the eyes of those attackers right in the Speaker's lobby there. I saw evil, Mr. Speaker. Our country came under attack, not from a foreign nation, but from, what, but from within. These were not protesters. These were not patriots. These were traitors. These were domestic terrorists, Mr. Speaker. And they were acting under the orders of Donald Trump. 
Now, some of my colleagues on the other side have suggested that we just move on from this horror. But to gloss over it would be an abdication of our duty. Others on the Republican side have talked about unity. But we can't have unity without truth and without accountability. And I'm not about to be lectured by people who just voted to overturn the results of a free and fair election. America was attacked, and we must respond, even when the cause of this violence resides at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. Each of us, each of us took an oath last week. It wasn't to a party, and it wasn't to a person. We vowed to defend the Constitution. The actions of Donald Trump have called each of us to fulfill that oath today. I pray that we rise to this responsibility because every moment Donald Trump is in the White House, our nation, our freedom is in danger. He must be held to account for the attack on our capital that he organized and he incited. I solemnly urge my colleagues to support this rule and the underlying article. The damage this building sustained can be repaired, Mr. Speaker. But if we don't hold Donald Trump accountable, the damage done to our nation could be irreversible. Congressman Jim McGovern, Democrat of Massachusetts, on the Republican side in the first debate on Wednesday over the rule enacted by the House Rules Committee, Oklahoma's Tom Cole led the Republican dissent. On behalf of generations of Americans to come, we need to think more clearly about the consequences of our actions today. The fact of the matter is, Mr. Speaker, there is no reason to rush forward like this, other than the very obvious fact that there are only seven days left until a new president takes office. So what, then, is the point of the rush to impeach? We are coming off a horrific event that resulted in six deaths. We have an opportunity to move forward, but we cannot if the majority insists on bringing the country through the trauma of another impeachment. It will carry forward into the next president's term, ensuring that he will struggle to organize his administration. What's worse, it will continue to generate the bitterness so many of us have opposed. Why put us through that when we can't actually resolve this before the end of the president's term? Mr. Speaker, I think my colleagues in the majority need to think about this more soberly. We need to recognize we are following a flawed process. We need to recognize that people of goodwill can differ. We need to recognize that while the House may be done with this matter after today's vote, it will not be done for the country, it will not be done for the Senate, and it will not be done for the incoming Biden administration. The House's action today will only extend the division longer than necessary. That was Republican Tom Cole of Oklahoma. There was a lot of talk in the debate about divisiveness and the need to heal the nation. Oh, yeah. Code word for Trump supporters. They have to be appeased or they'll launch more attacks. Apparently so, because pretty much all of that talk seemed to be coming from Republicans, many of whom voted to overturn the perfectly legal, lawful votes of millions of Americans just one week ago in an attempt to reverse the results of our presidential election. In addition to encouraging the insurrection mob, that, that, that seems a bit divisive to me, but what do I know? For her part, Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi had this to say in support of impeachment, describing the President of the United States as a clear and present danger to the nation. We know that we face enemies of the Constitution. We know we experienced the insurrection that violated the sanctity of the people's capital and attempted to overturn the duly recorded will of the American people. And we know that the President of the United States incited this insurrection 
this armed rebellion against our common country. He must go. He is a clear and present danger to the nation that we all love. Since the presidential election in November, an election the president lost, he has repeatedly held about the, uh, lied about the outcome, sowed self-serving doubt about democracy, and unconstitutionally sought to influence state officials to repeal reality. And then came that day of fire we all experienced. The president must be impeached, and I believe the president must be convicted by the Senate, a constitutional remedy that will ensure that the republic will be safe from this man who was so resolutely determined to tear down the things that we hold dear and that hold us together. of Representatives has voted to impeach President Donald Trump for inciting an insurrection at the U.S. Capitol in a bid to overturn Joe Biden's Electoral College victory, making Trump the first U.S. president to be impeached twice. Wednesday's vote was 232 to 197, with 10 Republicans joining Democrats. It's the most bipartisan impeachment in history. It was one week ago today, the morning after the insurrection, that Congressmember Ilhan Omar of Minnesota, a former refugee, the first Somali-American to serve in Congress and also the first to wear a hijab in U.S. Congress, first unveiled a resolution to impeach Trump. During Wednesday's proceedings, she called Trump a tyrant. Let us not mince words about what happened last week. It was a violent attempt to interrupt our democratic process. It was a targeted blow at the most essential process that makes us a democracy. It was a direct and specifically incited by the President of the United States. For years, we have been asked to turn a blind eye to the criminality, corruption, and blatant disregard to the rule of law by the tyrant president we have in the White House. We as a nation can no longer look away. In 2019, President Trump was also impeached by the House for abuse of power and obstruction of Congress. This is Democratic Congresswoman Diane DeGette of Colorado, who served as an impeachment manager last year and will again this year, speaking on Wednesday. Just over a year ago, I stood right there where you're standing today as we took the solemn step of impeaching the President of the United States for pressuring a foreign leader to take unlawful actions to help him in his reelection. And now, just one week ago, almost to the hour, I laid right there on the floor of the gallery above us. I heard gunshots in the speaker's lobby. I heard the mob pounding on the door. And what they were trying to do, they were all an angry mob incited by the president trying to stop certification of a legitimate election. It's clear the president learned nothing in the last year. Yesterday, the president said again he did nothing wrong. This man is dangerous. He has defied the Constitution. He's incited sedition, and he must be removed. 
President Trump now faces an impeachment trial in the Senate, which Republican leader Mitch McConnell has adjourned until January 19th, making it unlikely the trial will take place before Joe Biden is inaugurated. For more, we're joined by John Boniface, co-founder and president of Free Speech for People, co-author of The Constitution, demands it, the case for the impeachment of Donald Trump. John, welcome back to Democracy Now! Can you talk about the significance of this second impeachment of Donald Trump and what it means and what will happen in the Senate. Thank you, Amy, for having me. This is a significant historic vote. The House of Representatives did its duty to pass this article of impeachment against Donald Trump for inciting insurrection, a violent, seditious attack on the U.S. Capitol to overthrow constitutional government. And as Speaker Pelosi has said, he is a clear and present danger to the nation. He must be removed immediately. So we do not accept the idea that Senator McConnell has put forward that somehow the Senate cannot act immediately to hold this impeachment trial and convict and remove him. There is a procedure for enacting emergency rules to reconvene the U.S. Senate, and Senator McConnell ought to do that. The fact of the matter is that members of the Republican-led Senate are responsible those who did not vote to convict last time are responsible in part for allowing this president to stay in office, someone who has clearly abused his power time and time again, leading to this violent attack, attack on the U.S. Capitol just last week. Well, John Bonifaz, I mean, it seems uh, uh, that McConnell is not likely to reconvene the Senate. Could you talk about uh, what the uh, significance and the effects, consequences would be of impeaching a president carrying out a trial in the Senate for a former president? What would be the consequences of that? Well, the consequences are that there is a basis for disqualifying a member of, you know, the public who has held public office before and has been convicted from ever running for office and holding office again. And that disqualification has to happen here. Not only should he be convicted for having engaged in this insurrection, inciting this insurrection, but he should be barred from ever holding future federal office. And that can happen even if he has already left office. And that's significant because, of course, the president has said that he intends uh, to uh, consider running for office again, has suggested that he might run in 2024. Uh, and, and there's no basis for him uh, to be able to hold office again if he's convicted. And in fact, uh, the 14th Amendment, Section 3, makes clear that anyone who is engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the United States may not hold public office in the future. Well, could you elaborate on that, uh, uh, John, the, the Section 3 of the 14th Amendment? In a recent piece uh, in the Washington Post, American historian Eric Foner advocated uh, invoking uh, that uh, section, Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, as a more expeditious way of getting rid of Trump and also a more appropriate one. He wrote, and I'll just quote very uh, briefly, that invoking a constitutional provision meant to limit the political power of Confederate leaders would mark an appropriate end to the career of a president 
who so closely identified himself with the memory of the Confederacy and with a culture of white resentment. John Boniface. I, I agree. I agree with Eric Foner. And in fact, uh, you know, with respect to invoking this provision of the 14th Amendment, and in fact, that provision is cited in the article of impeachment that the House of Representatives passed yesterday. But it doesn't mean that we only do that. We have to proceed with this impeachment trial. Uh, this president must be held accountable for the charges that have now been issued by the U.S. House of Representatives for inciting insurrection. Uh, and, and impeachment means anything. It means that this president be held accountable for his crimes, his high crimes that he has uh, committed. So I think we ought to make sure that the Senate does its job, that it holds this impeachment trial immediately, that it convicts and removes this president from public office, while at the same time invoking that provision of the 14th Amendment. And frankly, it ought to be invoked not only against the president, but against those members of Congress who participated in seeking to overthrow a free and fair election last November. Even after this violent attack on the U.S. Capitol, you had 140 members of the U.S. House, you had seven members of the U.S. Senate voting after that attack to overthrow this free and fair election. They participated in helping to incite this insurrection. They participated in spreading the big lie that somehow this was a fraudulent election. It was not. Uh, and, and the idea that they get to stay in office after having participated in that, in that action is antithetical to our democracy and to that provision of the 14th Amendment. We've just heard clips today, starting with At Liberty from the ACLU reacting to the actions of the president and the police on the day of the insurrection. Counterspin discussed in depth how different things would have looked if the mob had been anything other than white. It's Been a Minute with Sam Sanders took a deep dive into the history of white mobs in America. Democracy Now! in two parts spoke with historian Timothy Snyder about the predictability of what will happen when a leader with a large following tells a big lie. We heard the message from Arnold Schwarzenegger comparing the insurrection to Kristallnacht. The broadcast played highlights of the debate over impeaching Trump for the second time. And finally, we just heard at Democracy Now! report on the most bipartisan impeachment in history. Now, we generally have bonus clips that only members hear, though I am foregoing that for today's episode, along with foregoing any ads as well. That's another reason why we are so grateful to our members who make it possible for us to do that when the need arises during times like these. What members did get this week was a roundtable discussion featuring Amanda, myself, and for the first time, our researchers, Dion and Aaron, as we worked to sort of process the past weeks. The reviews from members have been good so far, so you're definitely going to want to check that out. To hear that and all of our bonus content delivered seamlessly into your podcast feed, sign up to support the show at bestofleft.com support, or request a financial hardship membership because we don't make a lack of funds a barrier to hearing more information. Every request is granted, no questions asked. And now, we'll hear from you. 
AJ, it's Alan from Connecticut calling about episode 1333 and fear and anger. I don't disagree with anything you've said in your process and interesting enough with the, what's happened in the last week or a week ago with the Capitol, storming of the Capitol. I somewhat agree with you. I, I assume that you're not angry at those people because my thought and philosophy is they are following what their beliefs are. And they truly believe that democracy has not been upheld and that corruption has occurred to have Biden be president. And thinking back four years ago, when Trump was announced the winner of the presidency, I know I was upset and disheartened and and angry. So I, I can justify their anger, fear, and emotions, not their actions, obviously, but I can understand how they felt and I can understand, if you will, the way that they have followed blindly in the rhetoric that has been told to them that the people that would do that are also likely the people to smash windows, break doors, and maybe that's a stretch and maybe that's not fair, but that's the rationalization in my mind. You know, I just think that we're all different types of people. And I think that certain types of people <laughs> might be more politically inclined one way or the other, just like they might be more inclined for certain jobs and positions. And that might also be the same type of people that followed that rhetoric and led to action. There were certainly people that believed that as well, but did not go storming the castle. But I think those are kind of a different different person. So anyway, those are my thoughts. Love to hear what, what your thoughts are on that as well. Stay awesome. Keep wearing a mask. And don't touch your face. Hi, Jay. This is Beth from Seattle. I hope you are well. My first point is that I think that a couple of ideas touched on in the last few months struck me as especially important. One was when you talked about Amanda's grandma. You talked about how she is such a sharp and good person, and also that she is from an era and a social context that has resulted in her having some less than progressive views. You talked about the importance of talking, and especially listening to people, respectfully, and in good faith, even though it may never result in agreement on certain issues. This was touched on again recently by Amanda, when regarding activism, etc. She made the point that one of the most important things progressives, and indeed others, though we can only control our own actions, can do is to reach across divisions in whatever small way we can. Obviously this is not appropriate or useful in every situation, but I think trying to identify when it is, and being brave enough, while retaining an attitude of good faith and respect, is more important than perhaps it's ever been. I say this as someone whose only older sister, who happens to be one of the closest people to me in the world, has recently gone down the conspiracy rabbit hole. I don't need to elaborate on how troubling and depressing this is. And to be clear, she is a doctor of Chinese medicine and truly a super smart, and, at heart, good person. Until now she has been sort of more or less indifferent to politics and history, so I think that has definitely contributed to her susceptibility to the crazy misinformation industrial complex. Anyway, we continue to talk regularly and have soldiered through multiple stressful and difficult conversations. But regardless I know we both maintain our love and respect for each other, and try to listen with openness, even when it feels a bit maddening. So while there are several fronts that progressives need to coordinate and move on, I believe this is one that is important and undervalued. 
It's been shown time and again that it's much harder to hate and dehumanize someone you actually have connected with person to person. The other point I just need to air is partly because I'm fully freaked out and unsure what to do. I happen to be a queer progressive biracial woman who advocates for reasonable gun ownership rights. I don't have time to go into the whole issue from my perspective. But let's just say it's good to be aware of the history of gun rights in this country, that understanding the value of having the means to defend oneself in a reasonable way hasn't always, and doesn't have to be the sole domain of the right. I feel that if more women, if they wanted to of course, had facility with an ownership of firearms, the impunity with which predatory males feel they can act would be greatly reduced. That said, I wanted to sound a tiny alarm to you and all of your listeners, that may not be on progressives' radar. I haven't even picked up my handgun or shotgun in years, as my partner really hates guns. But yesterday, in a paranoid moment, I decided I should go ahead and buy some ammo, just in case. Well, there was none. 40 caliber and 12 gauge shotgun rounds were sold out across the board, in in-person stores, and online alike, and I looked for a while. Now I did end up finding a box of highly overpriced 40 caliber ammo, but I am not exaggerating when I say this common caliber was sold out across the board. I don't have to tell you all that this seems to me a gargantuan red flag in case we needed another one. I don't know what should be done with this information, I just thought this might be a blind spot for many progressives, who might somewhat naively not be appreciating the terrifying nature of the current moment. Pelosi et al. are discussing impeachment and the most likely useless 25th Amendment. Accountability for Trump and Cruz, etc., but there is a much bigger and more urgent problem here. Okay well on that happy note, thanks for all you guys do, Jay? Amanda, and team. Love to you and be well. Hey Jay, so I've been listening for almost a decade now and taking selfies at my polling place every election, uh, wearing my best of left hoodie uh, since like 2014. You know, it's still my favorite article of clothing even seven years later. Uh, so when it came to a you know super secret reward just for sharing the show, I eventually convinced myself I had to have it. Uh, whoever that last voicemail was from, you bleep for spoilers, which by the way was hilarious, uh, finally got me off my ass. So thankfully, I'm in medical school right now. Uh, I've been pretty bo- vocal for the past couple of years with my preference for socialized medicine. So I have quite a few classmates and friends whom it was relatively easy to share the show with, and I'm confident it didn't change a single one of their opinions of me. Uh, moreover, it even restarted a last political chat with a good friend whom I haven't spoken to in a few years. He's a liberal working at a relatively high level for a centrist Republican, a very conservative southern state, as in like Trump plus 33 level conservative. So anyways, we swapped uh, subscription recommendations. Uh, I obviously said best of the left, which he remembered I definitely mentioned him in the past. And he recommended Throughline, which I'd heard of, but I'd never looked into. Anyway, long story, slightly less long. Appreciate you. Keep up the good, you know, admiral and exhausting work. Uh, I'll be throwing some more bucks your way once I'm done racking up my six-figure student loans and hopefully start making a you know low six-figure income. Thanks for everything. Stay awesome. Thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line or wrote in their messages to be played as voicemails. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can record a message at 202-999-3991 or simply write me an email to j at bestofleft.com. First, to Alan... He is right. I am not mad at the protesters slash mob slash rioters. It makes sense to be mad at 
anyone who knows that the big lie about the election is a lie, and anyone in power who may even believe that the big lie is true, but also has the responsibility as an elected leader or media personality or anything like that to work harder at not falling into conspiratorial thinking and actually saying what is true. You can also be upset at the platform, social media, who have been amplifying extreme and conspiratorial thinking by, you know, sort of leaning too heavily into their own internal optimistic thinking about the effect of their platforms while ignoring their responsibility to guard against inevitable negative consequences of their for-profit town squares, which they have effectively built, that thrive on extremism. It is not surprising in any sense of the word, for anyone who knows how those platforms work, what kind of content on those platforms are most profitable, for us to see the result that we have seen based on messages and ideas and conspiratorial thinking uh, being shared on those platforms. The people who get sucked into that conspiratorial thinking, though, deserve our pity and empathy, at least to some degree, which brings us to Beth. And here's my advice to Beth and anyone else dealing with people, friends, family, anyone like that, who has gone down the conspiratorial rabbit hole. Ask them this question, and maybe ask it as often as needed. If what you believe to be true isn't true, how would you know? The problem with conspiratorial thinking is that people end up in insular, self-reinforcing loops of confirmation bias. They build these sort of mental walls around themselves that don't let in any information that doesn't conform to what they already believe. That's a phenomenon that we are all susceptible to, but conspiratorial thinking is that just ratcheted up to an extreme degree. The thing to remember, though, is that these people are usually just as committed to knowing the truth as anyone else. They don't believe that they've fallen for lies and misinformation. They think that they are doing their own research and coming to very rational conclusions. And so a question like, if what you believe to be true isn't true, how would you know? It is known to be a good start to a conversation about having a conspiratorial thinker come to their own conclusion about their insular thinking. Because of that mental wall they have built, they can't be told from the outside that they are thinking in conspiratorial insular loops. They have to realize it themselves. And that question is a really great place to start to puncture that wall just enough so that they begin to question for themselves their own rationale for blocking off information that doesn't conform to what they already believe. And some of them are to some degree aware that they are blocking off that information. If you see any of those interviews with any of the people who showed up on January 6th in DC, a lot of them will say very explicitly how they do not read the news or watch the news because they are convinced that those people are lying and they'll only believe the random ravings of people on their chosen social media feeds. So they are aware to some degree that 
they are insulating themselves. And so asking that question can help get them to think about that behavior in a slightly different light. Now, finally, on to our third caller, John. Thanks, obviously, for sending that in and for sharing the show with enough people to get your super secret best of left artwork. John is not the only one to have been spurred to action by the allure of our super secret best of left artwork, in addition to Nick's message in which he tried to spoil it for everyone, and I had to hold him back from that. But he is the first that I have heard uh, so far who has rekindled old friendships just by sharing the show. So the benefits just keep coming. The artwork is great. The reviews have all been good so far. Everyone who's been sharing the show has been having positive experiences doing that. And it is super quick and easy to sign up and easy to do. So get all the information you need at bestofleft.com slash refer. And that link is in the show notes right on your device, of course. So as always, keep the comments coming in at 202-999-3991 or by emailing me to j at bestofleft.com. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to Dion Clark and Aaron Clayton for their research work on the show. Thanks to the monosyllabic transcriptionist trio, Ben, Dan, and Ken for their volunteer work helping to put our transcripts together. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets, activism segments, graphic design, webmastering, and on and on. And thanks, of course, to those who support the show by becoming a member or purchasing gift memberships at bestofleft.com slash support, as that is absolutely how the program survives. For details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog and likely right on the device you're using to listen. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of Left podcast coming to you twice week. Weekly, usually, though I got to be honest, this past uh, week and a half or so has been tough. It, it feels like going back to the very beginning of COVID-19 lockdown, I've got insurrection brain. Things are foggy. It's hard to focus. It's hard to work. And I already explained to the members, since they pay all of our bills, that we're reducing our schedule a little bit or just giving ourselves a break and having it be a little bit more fluid as things continue to uh, unravel here. And so we usually come to you twice a week. These days, a little bit less so, but hopefully that won't last for too long. So thanks entirely to the very understanding and supportive members and donors of the show as we come to you from bestofleft.com. If we see-